You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hoopy, what's going on, man? Not much, uh, other than HRSA audits, um, uh, four HRSA audits in the last couple of weeks, so there's that. But other than that, and helping clients prepare for those HRSA audits, just keeping busy. How about yourself? Yeah, I've had my head down auditing, I feel like, all of September. Haven't been paying attention to 340B news very well, so I'm glad we're having a chance to, to catch you up. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, so we've got two new manufacturers implementing policies that are restricting 340B drugs in contract pharmacies. What, what's going on with these new manufacturers? Yeah, two. So that's number, for everyone counting, that's number 25 and number 26. So number 25 is Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And interestingly enough, just one drug, um, and I apologize if I say it wrong, but Epidiolex, Greg, help me out. I think that's it. You think that's it? Okay. And we, yeah. and anyone's listening and we're totally off base, we apologize. Um, but uh, just one drug, their restriction start date is 10-9, so coming up pretty quick. Um, as so, And the, their parameters are just hospital, no grantees, so just impacting hospitals. Um, they will not give you access back for sending data, so that's still, we're still only four of the 26. I'll just give you an insight, in, insight that insight. Wow, I just came up with that. That was so nerdy. Um, also is not allowing for full... Um, recovery of all your 340B pricing at all your contract pharmacies. So we're now at four of 26 manufacturers are the only ones allowing that. But it is, so Jazz's process is you can select a single contract pharmacy if you don't have an in-house retail pharmacy and they do not allow for a health system owned exception. So if it's a health system owned pharmacy, you just have to select it as your single contract pharmacy if you want. Insight's very similar. Also a only uh, starting with just a single drug. Let's go with um, Opzelura. All right. As good as I could do, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, again, if it were totally off base, someone let us know. Um, that one's just a week later on 10, 10 16, 23 is the restriction start date. Um, all the same things, uh, doesn't impact grantees, only impacts hospitals, will not give you full access back for sending data. Um, single contract pharmacy exception if you don't have an in-house retail, no health system one exception. And one little wrinkle with Insight is a 40-mile rule. So for that single contract pharmacy selection, if you don't have it in-house retail, that pharmacy does have to be within 40 miles. I feel like we're talking about kind of a specialty drug, so that's somewhat problematic. But but there it is. Those are our two manufacturers. Yeah, interesting. Again, we're talking about policies that are selecting out single drugs. And I got this question from a group of folks that I've been working with. Um, I thought it was a really good question. What's the rationale for these manufacturers just limiting these restrictions to a single NDC as opposed to all marketed products in their portfolio? Any thoughts on, on why that's happening? Well, any thoughts I have will just purely be um, my own opinions because I haven't talked to any of those manufacturers. But uh, it's a good question, right? Because I think both these manufacturers have more than one drug in their um, portfolio. And if you're looking at the drugs, you'd have to think maybe these are their higher cost drugs. Maybe they're drugs that have a big delta to 340B. Um, and, and maybe financially for them, they're the ones causing the most um, financial impact. And so they're hopping on board with just these ones and maybe not everything because maybe the rest weren't as critical. That would be my guess. Uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I thought maybe these are, you know, higher margin project products, or maybe there are NDCs that are subject to a higher rate of Medicaid rebate invoicing. You know, this was the whole kind of uh, kind of intention for this 340B ESP data collection process and the manufacturer restrictions is to try to mitigate some of the duplicate discounts that the manufacturers have been subject to. I think a lot of folks will will challenge that as the reason why they're continuing to do this. But I really can't put my finger on uh, a, a solid reason why a manufacturer would just apply the policy to one product of their portfolio. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, so if anyone out there listening um, has any intel on that, uh, you know, shoot us, drop us a line, 340B unscripted at spendmen.com or email us if you have our emails. And and heck, if you want to come in and talk about it, let us know more than love to have someone kind of talk about some of the, the insight on um, kind of why the manufacturers are doing what they're doing. Yeah. You mentioned HRSA audits are starting to pick up again at the beginning of the federal fiscal year. We we talked, I think, during our last episode about some of the changes that have been made to the data request list. Um, with, with the periodic calls that you've been involved in, any clarity around some of the new items that HRSA is requesting, like tri unbundled trial bounds or Medicaid data? Yeah, the the bigger one um, I, to me is the the un the question of unbundled. I think we talked about it last time. We know unbundled, and this is for the trial balance um, for worksheets A and C, they want to unbundle trial balance. The word unbundled was added to the DRL for 2024. And the question was how unbundled, right? I think if anyone watched the webinar that uh, you, Kat, and I did, um, the the example I showed was partially unbundled. Um, and meaning that when you look at the trial balance, each cost center just has one expense summed up and one uh, charge summed up for worksheets A and C, respectively. But we know that there are some um, trial balances that go into more detail. So for instance, when you're looking at expenses, that same cost center might have many, many lines of data with different GL lines to cover things like, you know, some would be salary costs, some would be uh, maybe a food cost, maybe you have a supplies cost, uh, you know, all these different individual GLs that are broken down in a hospital so that you can track expenses for different categories. That would be a fully unbundled crosswalk. And same thing on the charges worksheet C side, you'll actually not just see, you know, one line for all the charges you had, outpatient charges you had. You might actually see the various payers that you charge. You might say Medicare here, maybe this managed Medicare plan here and Medicaid here and commercial here and so forth. So so I did ask um, one of the um, Bazell HRSA auditors on a periodic call, can you clarify what level of unbundling on that cost report do you or in the trial balance are you expecting? And the answer was the fully unbundled. They want to see that line item detail for the various expenses in the GLs. And so not I was hoping they would just say, no, no, we just want to see the cost center and the summary because once in a while they'll get a trial balance that just it just mimics the actual worksheet A and C in the Medicare cost report, which doesn't really give you the cost center level detail you need. But but at least for an N of one, um, yeah. I, I didn't ask it to the first one, which I had on Monday, the periodic call. So I just remembered um, this time today to ask it. And that was the response. And so we'll, maybe we'll continue to ask it to various um, uh, Hearst auditors just to make sure we get the same response. But so far, um, definitely looking like the fully unbundled, unbundled trial balance crosswalk. Good to know. All right, another thing that I missed while out on audit the last couple of weeks, um, health uh, subcommittee. So the House ENC health subcommittee had a hearing on the proposed uh, legislative uh, solutions to uh, drug shortages. Any takeaways from the various uh, testimonies that were provided during the, the hearing, if you had a chance to listen to it? Yeah, so this was uh, September 14th was the hearing. Uh, and there's some really good back and forth, some pro, um, you know, exempting 
generic injectables from 340B program and then some not. And, you know, I won't throw any specific people or names on there because I think it's, you know, people are entitled to their thoughts and opinions. But we had one drug um, manufacturer person um, go on record and say, and I'll kind of read this um, information. They kind of talked about the fact that the um, that spending on generic drugs makes up about 1% of total healthcare spending. So 340B revenue losses to providers from generic injectable exemptions, and this is a quote, would be unnoticeable. Um, what's interesting, then, then there's an ASHP person, of course, I'll highlight the person that's more pro 340B, but the ASHP person um, responded with, um, our hospitals and health systems that are providing care for underserved patients would notice um, a drop in, um, you know, uh, or an increase in cost for those generic injectables. So, so interesting, you're, you're, we continue to get this kind of back and forth. If you remember, um, uh, I think someone uh, fr from the legislative side said that this wouldn't be a big impact to hospitals. And I just think it's interesting. I, I don't know if they're just saying that because that's the way they want it to be, or they actually have data to support that. But um, I, I'm still at a place, Greg, from the last time we talked about this, that I still don't even know which gener generic injectables this means and how many we're talking about, because that definition we read still seemed um, kind of loose. Like, I, I don't know even how to calculate um, how many we're talking about or what the impact would be. Yeah, I think you got to take kind of worst case scenario in that it it would you would project it to apply to all your generic injectables that have two manufacturers. Because I think the provision or the, the definition was drugs used or marketed for serious conditions. I don't know how you exclude any particular uh, clinical uh, disorder or clinical condition as being serious if you're treating the patient within the hospital setting. Yeah, yeah. There, there's also some components that also say they would be um, that someone said it chips away the Inflation Reduction Act by excluding certain manufacturers from inflation, inflationary rebates would be the other piece, right? So not just three, no 340B, but if they raise the price of their drug faster than inflation, they wouldn't get the IRA penalty either. Um, so that means it would, and, and I, I kind of sit there and think, and you're, the argument here is, well, if generic manufacturers can just raise the price of the drugs as fast as they want without any repercussions, then we wouldn't have as many drug shortages because they'd make more money. I get, I, I get, understand that logic. I mean, it makes sense if you think about it, but the point is, but are we sure that generic injectable drugs reason for drug shortages is purely cost or is it something else? And, and maybe this is them saying, hey, free market, let them price what they want. But then what does it do to the cost of drugs and cost of healthcare in the US, right? There's so many facets to this. I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to continue to have some definite partisan politics on this one and, and definitely a uh, takes from both sides be having very different opinions because there's so many components to it. Yeah. So again, another piece of legislation we'll pay close attention to. You mentioned the IRA. I think that's a good segue into the main topic for this week's uh, episode. We've got a guest with us. On the other side of the break, we'll have Jeff Davis. He is a healthcare attorney for Bass, Berry, and Sims. Um, he's been kind of one of the, the 340B experts that have been sharing lots of insight around how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to intersect with 340B providers. So we'll take a quick break here. And on the other side, we'll have a conversation with Jeff about IRA and 340B. Thanks, Rob. See Sounds you in a good. Looking forward to it. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization.
Hey, everyone. Welcome back. We're here with our guest this week, healthcare attorney Jeff Davis from the law firm Bassberry Sims. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. We had some discussions internally in one of our team meetings I don't know, it was a couple of weeks ago where we were going back and forth on, you know, what are the requirements for Medicare Part B billing moving forward for 340B covered entities? Which drugs require which modifiers? And we were talking ourselves in circles. We said we need to find somebody that really understands this well and bring them on the podcast to kind of, you know, outline what 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 the true uh, timelines are for implementation. And I thought of you because at the coalition this past summer, I feel like I went to eight or nine different sessions talking about the Part B stuff, talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. And you were on each of those sessions. I heard many times you walked through the saga of CMS and their Medicare Part B policies over the years and the impact that the IRA is going to have on the 340B community. So I'm really glad you were willing to come on here and help help us clarify our understanding around what covered entities are going to kind of need to do moving forward with regard to all of the, the intersecting work of the Inflation Reduction Act. But before we get into those questions, how about a little background on yourself? How'd you get into your line of work right now? Sure. Uh, happy to share a little background. So as you mentioned, I'm a partner at the law firm Bass, Barry & Sims on our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, and I've been in private practice for, for a number of years now, helping uh, 340B covered entities, but also working with pharmacies and vendors in the 340B space related to 340B providers. Uh, uh, Before going into private practice, I spent about eight years in-house at 340B Health as uh, an attorney at the Trade Association working with hospitals 340B program. So I've spent a number of years uh, as an attorney in the 340B space and now in private practice, you know, really focusing on um, helping, uh, you know, address compliance issues that come up with HRSA audits, drug manufacturer inquiries, um, operational issues that come up. Uh, and I also continue to kind of keep a foot in the policy world uh, as a lobbyist, uh, you know, working with Congress and HHS on uh, developments that may be occurring legislatively or through regulation or guidance, um, and really just on 340B issues, but also on broader reimbursement issues, Medicare, Medicaid, billing, and reimbursement questions that come up, um, which I think actually kind of uh, in part why I've been so focused over the last couple of years on the Inflation Reduction Act uh, and these issues we'll be talking about today, because it really is the intersection between 340B and pharmacy and Medicare reimbursement. Great. Thanks for that that introduction. Yeah. You know, so I guess we can start maybe with a question that we are getting commonly from 340B covered entities, and this is around what hospitals and other 340B providers are going to need to do in terms of CMS, Medicare, Part B, and eventually Part D um, billing claim identification. So I guess kind of talk us through maybe what is going to be required of covered entities to ensure that 340B claims are uh, addressed um, as part of the IRA. Sure. You know, this question of you know, claim identification and whether 340B covered entities and pharmacies, when they, you know, bill pairs for 340B claims, whether they have to include a modifier on the claim or in some way, shape, or form identify for the payer that this is a 340 claim. You know, this question has been coming up really for years now in a variety of different contexts. You know, if you think about 
you know, prior to the Inflation Reduction Act being passed uh, about a year ago, I guess, of, of 2022, you know, historically, I think this question has come up mostly in the context of Medicaid billing, uh, because, you know, as, as 340B covered entities know, you know, under the, the prohibition against 340B and Medicaid duplicate discounts, you know, there can be an obligation for, for providers, for covered entities to, you know, prevent the manufacturer from having to pay two discounts on the same drug, um, both the 340B discount and a rate to the Medicaid agency. And so in some states, in many states these days, you know, you are seeing claim identification requirements when it comes to billing Medicaid or Medicaid uh, managed care organization for a 340B drug and, and all concerns about, you know, how difficult that can be operationally and, and whether it's, it's feasible. Um, we're now starting to see those same questions come up in the Medicare space, not just Medicaid. And in part, that's because of some of these new provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, the IRA is, is a really big, massive law and just focusing on healthcare focuses on on climate and energy and tax issues and a whole host of issues. But, but you know, even within the healthcare space, a lot of the attention has been paid to the Medicare drug negotiation program, um, yeah. which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Um, but one of the provisions that maybe talked about less is the, the creation of a new rebate program under Medicare, where manufacturers will have to pay rebates to Medicare um, on drugs um, when increase the price faster than inflation, sort of a penalty for increasing the price so much. Um, and this is really similar, by the way, to the existing uh, uh, inflation rebate program under the Medicaid rebate program. For years, this has always been the case where manufacturers have to pay an increased rebate amount to Medicaid if they increase the price of their drugs so quickly. Basically, Congress chose in the IRA to extend Medicaid inflation rebate penalty into the Medicare space under both Medicare Part B and Part D. And so now manufacturers will have to pay these new rebates. But what Congress did when they created these new rebate programs is they exempted 340B drugs. Um, they said, yes, manufacturers will have to pay a rebate to Medicare on drugs that are billed and paid by Medicare if that drug price increased faster than inflation. But when Medicare calculates the amount of the rebate, when they look at the units of the drug that were paid by Medicare, um, they're going to exclude units of that drug if they were sold at 340B price. So that's built into the law, and Congress pretty much left it up to CMS as the agency implementing this to figure out how to identify 340B units so that they can be excluded from from those rebate calculations. And so we're seeing different guidance that's being issued for B and for Part D uh, because there are different timelines. Um, yeah. We've seen guidance issued on Part B um, that I guess is sort of more immediately going into effect. So actually that's probably where we want to focus on, I think, you know, in terms of you know, the next steps. Is Part B kind of where you're getting the most action? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the, the Part B, the, the CMS guidance that was put out from uh, CMS earlier, well, I guess it was in December, initial guidance in December, and then a guidance again in um, March. And Rob, correct me if I'm wrong on my interpretation of this, but, you know, there's been some conflation of the Medicare Part B OPPS billing modifiers that covered entities had had to use going back to 2018, which have uh, since been reversed. At least the payment reductions associated with those modifiers has been reversed. And we may get to questions about the three CMS Part B remedy um, later. 
but conflating the OPPS modifier requirements with some of the updated guidance related to IRA stipulated um, roles around uh, adding modifiers to claims. So I guess you know the questions that we're getting are which CEs are going to be required to put on modifiers for Part B drugs? Which types of drugs are going to require those mod modifiers? And what are the key timelines for getting all of that into place? That has been confusing, uh, you know, at least for this year and, and fiscal year 23, CMS had said continue to add the JG and TB modifiers, right? We know JG is for status indicator K drugs, TB is for status indicator G drugs. And what we're hearing is for 2024 is just all TB modifiers might be sufficient. So we're waiting for that confirmation just to make it simple um, and, you know, just be able to have to do one modifier and not go back and forth between the two, especially if there's not a payment reduction or a difference between the two. Not sure if, if you're hearing something similar, Jeff, or if you've read anything similar. Yeah, no, I think you are right that there has been some confusion because everything that I just outlined as sort of my intro speaks to how you're going to be identifying 340B units for purposes of this inflation rebate calculation, which is really separate from other requirements that CMS has had in the past, going back to 2018, specifically for hospitals. Um, that have also required the use of modifiers. So, uh, you know, for those covered entities that are hospitals, you know, you know that, you know, starting in 2018, CMS uh, reduced reimbursement rates to hospitals for certain 340B drugs, implemented these modifier requirements uh, you know, so that CMS would know when a hospital did a claim to Medicare Part B, this is under the Part B billing program. Um, for a 340B drug, it included a modifier, and if it included the JG modifier, it triggered a, a reduced reimbursement rate. The TB modifier was informational. Um, and that modifier requirements um, went into effect in 2018 and really have continued to be in effect since. Um, but there was confusion as to whether those modifiers would still be needed moving forward because there was a big victory hospitals had with the Supreme Court decision uh, last year saying, actually, CMS, you got this wrong. Um, and, and the way you implemented these payment reductions was not allowed under the Medicare statute. So they struck down that payment reduction policy. And, and CMS is now back to paying 340B hospitals the same rate for 340B drugs that they pay for non-340B drugs. But as you pointed out, CMS has said, even though we're no longer implementing that payment reduction to 340B hospitals, we're going to continue the use of the modifier requirement. And at first, there was a little confusion as to, well, why would you need to keep collecting the modifier from us if you're not going to pay us any differently for 340B drugs? And it may be because that's is sort of piggybacking off of that modifier requirement for this other purpose to identify yeah. the 340B units for the rebate calculation. But here's the, the, key, the key point here. They're actually expanding this modifier requirement beyond hospitals. And I think that's maybe one of the key takeaways. Up until now, when the modifier was used for purposes of the OPPS payment policy, that modifier was only required for hospitals paid on the OPPS. That means critical access hospitals didn't have to use a modifier because they're not paid by Medicare under the, the outpatient perspective payment system. Um, and non-hospital entities certainly were not required to use a modifier if they bill under Medicare Part B because they weren't subject to those payment policies either. Starting January 1 of next year, CMS is expanding that modifier requirement 
to all covered entities if they bill under Medicare Part B. So that means critical access hospitals would be one type of covered entity that's not been used to using monitors but is now going to have to. Um, there may be other types of covered entities. You know, not all three of the covered entities will actually bill under Medicare Part B. They may only be using 340B for, for pharmacy dispense drugs that bill Part D plans. But if you're a 340B covered entity, Mayo Ryan White Clinic, that bills under Part B, you would be required to use uh, the modifier as well. That's, I think, kind of one of the big points of confusion and, and kind of an upcoming deadline looming, January 1 of next year, where we're going to see an expansion of Part B modifier requirements. Yeah, so you, you may be working in a health system where you've had a handful of dish hospitals that have been using the JG all, all the way up until now. Um, but if you've also got critical access hospitals, which hadn't been using a, a modifier for Part B claims, you know, you're going to need to add those hospitals into your billing logic to make sure that 340B claims at those, uh, th those additional facilities are going to be included. And that requirement Im is implemented or is timeline for that needs to be completed by January 1, correct? All covered entities by January 1 need, need to be using either JG or TB modifier for separately billed Part B drugs. Ever. That's right. January 1 is when that goes into effect. And of course, you know, if you're a covered entity thinking, well, does this apply to me or not? Of course, you know, focus on you actually billing under Medicare Part yeah. B because not all covered entities do. Got it. I was going to say that, I mean, the, you know, we, I know we talked about it before, but kind of what Jeff just said, critical access hospitals is an area, right? They have less resources. This is going to be a heavy lift. And for those listening, this is something you want to start working with your billing departments now. Same thing for your grantees, right? I mean, most grantees probably don't have a ton of administered drugs, but especially our community health centers or FQHCs, they do quite a bit of administered drugs. So if they are billing, to just point, um, to uh, Medicare, under Medicare Part B, they're going to want to figure out how they do modifiers. And I think that's another uh, covered entity type that's going to actually, some of them will struggle with getting this in place. And, and CMS needs it so that they don't um, cause a, that the rebate, um, the inflation reduction or the inflation rebate penalty to manufacturers for 340B drugs. And so I, I definitely think um, we're gonna hear more and more from, about this. And I think this is gonna be a challenge come January. And I just wanna make sure everyone listening that you get, get on top of this sooner than later, because it does take some time to work with your billing department to create the processes to add these modifiers. And then another question that I know was circulating amongst the Spendman pharmacy team is which drugs are included? And I think the guidance stipulates separately paid drugs to Medicare Part B. Um, historically, we've thought of those, you know, through reviewing the OPPS role since 2018. It's status K indicator drugs, status G indicator drug. Jeff, are there any other guidelines out there regarding which drug products need to have the JG or TB modifiers included? Yeah, that's exactly right in terms of, you know, historically we've been focusing on the guidance that relates to the OPPS. So we look at the annual payment rule that comes out every year, the outpatient prospective payments and final rule. And, and under those rules, you know, we're pretty clear and we got a, got a rhythm in place since 2018. Hospitals were sort of used to, you know, every core there's a new uh, file posted that lists a drug by their HCPCS code and, and, and has a status indicator associated with it. This is the status indicator for separately paid drugs. This is the status indicator for separately paid drugs that have pasture status, that don't have pasture status. And, you know, CMS kind of gave pretty clear instructions. It's got the status indicator of K or, or, or G that, that, you know, it should um, uh, include the modifier. Now we're going to be working under different guidance, right? This is not the OPPS. This guidance that's being issued by CMS, same agency, but a different team. 
and they're issuing guides as it relates to the inflation rebate uh, program. And so we need to look at those guidance documents, and they've been issuing documents and guidance on a rolling basis. Um, going back, as, as I think someone mentioned, back to December of last year, there was sort of an initial Part B guidance document that came out, uh, and then another guidance uh, document came out uh, regarding a Part E and inflation rebates uh, in February earlier this year. So, you know, we should be looking to th those guidance documents to see what instructions CMS has for, for 340 providers for this new program. Certainly not getting easier, right? <laughs> nope, just another layer, another layer to the confusion. Well, you know, I don't know. I feel like Part B is fairly straightforward compared to what we might expect for Part D billing. I don't think we know right now where CMS is going to land on retail claim identification. So IRA provisions are going to require Part D drugs filled with 340B purchase medications to also be identified and removed from the rebate uh, invoicing process. Whether it's claim level modifier, a retrospective upload, or a retrospective transaction like an N1 or a clearinghouse. Jeff, any thoughts on where CMS is going to land on how Part D claims are going to need to be identified by pharmacies? I think there's some things that we do know, and then there are a lot of things that we don't know. What we do know is that by statute, and this is language Congress included in the, in the IRA, um, CMS, HHS, the Secretary of HHS, must come up with a mechanism by 2026 for how to identify 340B units uh, that are billed to Part D so those units can be excluded from the Part D inflation rate calculations. So we know that there must be a mechanism to do it. Um, how CMS ultimately choose to do it, what mechanism they will land on, um, remains to be seen. CMS has issued at least initial guidance on this, on, on Part D rebates, and they solicited a lot of feedback. They made very clear they've not made a decision yet, but they give a pretty clear indication, I think, of, of perhaps a direction that they may be leaning. That the way that they articulated um, their thought process is that um, some sort of claim identification is the direction that it sounds like they're leaning towards in that they, it seems to them that that's the, the best way to identify 340B claims. But they solicited comments and feedback from the public on other ways that they may be able to identify 340B units. And, you know, I think when you look at the comments, a lot of covered entities, providers, pharmacies have submitted, they have certainly focused on the, the concerns they have with the idea that the best way to do this would be some sort of point, point of sale claims modifier. Um, and as I pointed out, you know, these are not theoretical concerns. I think these are concerns that covered entities have um, based on Medicaid requirements, in some cases, commercial plans that tried to do this, where they have said, you know, you're only allowed to use 340B drugs for a Medicaid patient if you include a modifier on the claim into the Medicaid program or the Medicaid MCO, you know, the 20 modifier, for example, that says this is a 340B drug. And there can be real operational challenges given that, you know, pharmacies use often virtual inventory replenishment models where the seller doesn't identify uh, the 340Bility until after the fact. And so the pharmacy may know the point of sale, point of billing, whether it's a 340B drug or not. So we've seen a lot of those concerns presented. And instead of focusing on a point of sale modifier, we've seen a lot of writers suggest that maybe the way to do this would be some sort of retrospective 
after the fact, uh, you know, process. You know, the org model is something we talk about a lot because it's a system that's been in place for a number of years now for purposes of identifying 340B claims that have been billed to Medicaid MCOs through an electronic claims file that covered entity submits after the fact to the state's rebate vendor, and then the state can use that information to identify 340B units. And that's, I think, easier to operationalize because it's after the fact, it's retrospective. So we've seen it's all more, of those- more accurate too, right? It's you know ac accurate reflection of your, your qualified claims. Certainly, but you don't know at the point of sale whether it's ultimately going to get replenished at 340B or not, let alone how it's going to accumulate. So really, you know, 340B is so retrospective by nature, the ability to determine whether a particular drug was given to a 340B eligible patient, you know, you just may not know that. Right. Can I clarify something real quick? Jeff, you said 2026. I, I thought that the inflation penalty or the inflation rebate was supposed to start in 23. They, they kind of kicked the can down to 2024. Um, has there been movement on that, or are they still, is CMS still looking at implementing the inflation rebates in 2024? So, great question, and you're not wrong that the actual inflation rebates themselves are already in effect for both Part B and Part D in, in terms of sales will be subject to an inflation penalty. However, the question is when will CMS start sending invoices to manufacturers to actually collect the rebate? And there are different timelines in the statute for Part B versus Part D. And in particular, under Part D, there's a bit of a lag where the agency has the authority to um, delay when they start sending those invoices. Um, and so Part B does kick in sooner than Part, Part D. Um, but, and that is, I think, in part why the Part B modifier requirement goes into effect much more quickly. But for Part D, it does have until 2026 to figure this out. And it could be because they're going to hold the reports and not start sending invoices to manufacturers until they have this mechanism in place. Okay. That's, that's good news um, because you know, at first we thought it was going to be 24 for both. And with CMS not uh, coming to a, a conclusion on how we're going to do Medicare Part D, um, modifiers or notification to, to Medicare, uh, which ones were 340B. It just felt like same thing like the Medicare Part B modifiers. It, it uh, feels like time is short as we're almost ending Q3, get about to get into Q4. And especially if we're thinking about a clearinghouse versus, um, or even modifiers and how that would work in contract pharmacy or how that would work in, you know, in-house retail, it just seems way too soon when we don't, they don't even have a decision or guidance on, on how that's supposed to be conducted. So it's good to know that that's going to possibly go to 2026. I've also seen 2025 as a push out um, that they might not send invoices to 2025, but I guess first they have to come up with a decision on how it's going to, how they're going to collect information on what was 340B and then, you know, let everyone know when that requirement uh, starts because uh, it's going to take some time for sure. Absolutely. I mean, Rob, operationally, the, the the prospect of you know, adding claim level modifiers to your contract pharmacy uh, transactions is just a major headache, I think. Don't you agree? Oh, I mean, you know, and, and for in-house retails where the covered entity owns the retail pharmacy, right? They have a little more control. Yeah. But with contract pharmacy, where almost everything is retrospective, I mean, well over 90%, I would say, is retrospective qualification. The pharmacies don't know when that claim processes that they need to add the modifier. And so then... You know, based on HRSA's, uh, not HRSA, uh, CMS's initial kind of thought process using that, uh, either a modifier up front plus an N1 retrospectively, then that would require all these contract pharmacies to have to do more work for every 340B claim. And 
those those processes aren't built today. So it would be a heavy lift yeah. uh, to do it that way. So I think most of us are voting for a clearinghouse type model. That would be the simplest and probably the most um, uh, thorough. Uh, I, I think if you're trying to do N1s and, and code 20 modifiers, I think you're going to miss quite a bit and it's going to be a problem. Yeah, it's more the claim level modifier requirement. Be more practical for entity-owned retail pharmacies where you have ownership over your dispensing system. But in the contract pharmacy universe, the vast majority of contract pharmacies are carving out. So the use of or the application of state-level modifiers for Medicaid billing requirements really hasn't been implemented by the vast majority of 340B providers in the contract pharmacy space. So that, that's a new operational challenge, I think, that most covered entities would really struggle with. Sorry, Jeff, what were you going to say? Yeah, well, and I was going to say the other consideration here that we haven't really discussed because we focused, for reason, I think, mostly on operational factors, but it's the financial consequences of this. And you may be thinking, well, what is the real financial impact? Because you put a modifier in the game, what does that mean financially? Well, the concern historically has always been if you provide information on the game to the payer, to the Part D plan that says there's a 340B claim, now that plan has information that shows that drug was purchased at significantly reduced price, and will that plan start to lower reimbursement, your you know, contracted reimbursement rates for that claim? And so I think that's one of the other considerations, and you see this in the comments that, that providers have been submitting and pharmacies and submitting, saying, you know, whatever mechanism CMS ultimately settles on here, we need to ensure that it's not going to, you know, have the effect of cutting into or reducing 340B savings, you know, by, by allowing um, payers to reduce reimbursement rates. Yeah, it just replicates all the threats that came up, you know, maybe spring of last year when a number of the commercial PBMs started implementing policy changes to their uh, pharmacy network manual saying, hey, you're going to start to code your 340B claims with a modifier. We're not going to pay you less today, but you know, I think everyone felt the threat that those re re reductions in reimbursement are likely going to come in the future. All right, let's let's transition and move away from kind of like the operational impact. And maybe this kind of cascades into some operational, but also financial impact is how are 340B providers going to be able to access the maximum fair price versus the 340B price once uh, the pricing negotiations have been finalized and the first batch of drugs have a Medicare negotiated price associated with them? What's What's the access look like? Yeah, a great question. And this is another one where there are certain things we know and then some things we don't know. And I should know just sort of to introduce this topic that, you know, this is the portion of the Inflation Reduction Act that I think has gotten the most attention. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying in the context of 340B, but just more broadly in, in, in healthcare circles and the health, across the healthcare industry. This idea that there's going to be a Medicare drug negotiation program, Medicare is going to um, essentially require any drug manufacturer, if they want to participate in Medicare or Medicaid, so there's a the government saying it's voluntary, if, you know, so long as, you know, but if you're willing to, or if you're interested in participating in Medicare and Medicaid, then you must enter into an agreement with HHS where you're going to be capped at how much you can sell your drug for purposes of dispensing or administering to a Medicare beneficiary. So it's limited to Medicare. It's not going to extend to these drugs when they're used for commercially insured patients or, or, or Medicaid patients. Um, but this is a big deal because historically CMS has been prohibited from negotiating drug prices with manufacturers. Um, they're rolling this out kind of on a, on a, on a, on a rolling basis with a, another set of drugs on each year that will be subject to negotiation. This is another one, 2026 is a key year 
the first 10 drugs that have been selected for negotiation, they will be subject to an MFP, a maximum price. That's sort of the capped price amount starting 2026. And, and we do know what the 10 drugs are because CMS did just uh, released that list earlier this month. So this is really sort of starting to become a bit more real and less abstract. There's still a lot of operational questions um, that we don't know the answers to in terms of how this will be rolled out between now and January 1 of 2026. What we do know is that a pharmacy, whether it's a 340B pharmacy or not, um, is going to uh, need to get access to the MFP in some way. And what I mean by that is if you've got a drug that's a list of 10 drugs that have been selected for negotiation, uh, manufacturers are required to make this, this lower price that's going to be no greater than MFP. Um, it could be anywhere from a 25% discount to a 60% discount off of drug's average price. Um, so it could be a, a significantly lower uh, price. That price needs to be available to Medicare and to Medicare beneficiaries. So what that means is when the patient presents one of these prescriptions for these drugs to the pharmacy, the cost sharing that they're going to get charged needs to be based on the MFP. And then Medicare is going to reimburse the pharmacy for that drug uh, no greater than the MFP plus the dispensing fee. So where does that leave the pharmacy? Well, the pharmacy needs to make sure they're not underwater there, right? So they need to get access to the MFP to make sure that when they acquire the drug, the end of the day, they didn't pay any more than the MFP or else the reimbursement for Medicare not going to cover the drug purchase price. And so this is the requirement that CMS is working through on how it's implemented. How is it that manufacturers provide a pharmacy with access to the MFP? And what CMS has said in the guidance they've issued so far is that manufacturers will have a choice. They can do it one of two ways. They can either present a pharmacy with the option of getting access to the MFP upfront. So when they buy the drug upfront, they'll pay the MFP. Or there's some sort of back-end mechanism where the pharmacy may acquire the drug at some other price, whatever price they otherwise would acquire it at. And then on the back-end, they would submit some sort of request for a refund where they'd get refunded the difference between what they paid to buy the drug and the MFP, basically making it on the back-end as if the net purchase price was the MFP. Now, although manufacturers have this option, from everything we've been seeing out there, it sort of looks like manufacturers are preferring the second option, the, the back-end refund approach. Uh, so that's seemingly where things may be going in market. And there's still a lot of unknown questions we have in terms of um, that process. How will the pharmacy request the back-end refund? Who will process the, the refund? And also, a lot of questions about what kind of data will pharmacy need to provide in order to get back to the MFP? Ah, interesting thoughts, Jeff. You know, I think when this, we first kind of started talking about this, I guess internally amongst our team, you know, we were debating what would be more preferable by the provider, having access to this MFP at the point of sale, which would mean essentially introducing a fourth account to your triple split process if you're, a say, a dish-covered entity where you've got your WAC uh, GPO, 340B, and now maybe an M MFP account, or uh, would it be more practical to try to collect the the maximum fair price on the back end through a rebate process? I think both, both options in increasing the amount of work on behalf of the 340B provider. Rob, any thoughts? I know we've, we've had some discussions around this. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I talked to some wholesalers and the wholesalers definitely felt that the uh, adding a fourth account was something they didn't want to help manage. Just, you know, it's tough enough with 340B GPO whack and then class of trade issues like retail, which is a type of GPO. Entered to introduce an MFP would be pro- would be very difficult, but I, I'm still partial to some kind of uh, rebate model. Um, it does put the a little bit of more control on the manufacturers, which would be good for them. And I think covered entities are a little concerned. But then there's always the nuance about the fact that, well, as a as a covered entity, do you you know if you can buy that same drug at three for to be at a lower price, are you going to forego your MFP price? You know, or you know, how does that work? Um, right? Because then if you're doing an accumulation model of some sort. It gets tricky because you may not use those accumulations uh, since you have better access to 340 or 340B is still lower if it qualifies. But if you're in the retail setting and you're open door, you could have some prescriptions that qualified, some that don't. Um, and so I just think this thing could get a little messy. So I'm I'm waiting for the the process that they're going to define, or if they're open to suggestions, um, you know what that looks like and and what people present. So I, I know people have submitted some uh, thoughts on this, but uh, it's I, I think this one's going to be tough no matter which way it goes, to be honest. And we've, we've got a lot of 340B providers out there still kind of dealing with the heartburn of the retrospective data submission process to obtain 340B pricing at contract pharmacies through 340B ESP data upload. So I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of consternation out there around the thought of having to implement some other type of retrospective data collection and upload pro- process to get access to pricing. Jeff, have you heard similar thoughts from folks that you're working with? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the conversations, concerns, the, the heartburn, as you say, uh, that we've been hearing about the, you know, electronic, uh, you know, claims file submission process that a lot of drug manufacturers have required. You know, you have to use this on platform, upload claims data in order to get access to reportability pricing. I think there's a, a parallel there um, that we could see potentially, depending on how CMS chooses to, to implement this um, under the Medicare initiation program, we saw some hints in the most recent guidance that they issued, um, more than hints really, certain commenters saying, you know, pharmacies are going to have to submit some data um, so that manufacturers can validate whether or not a particular claim should be eligible for the MFP um, or even whether it should be eligible for 3DB. Um, and that this might require pharmacies to identify, for example, whether a claim is for 340B drug or not. In other words, in order for the pharmacy to get access to this back-end refund, they're going to need to identify whether it's a 340B claim um, amongst perhaps other information, like whether it was for a Medicare beneficiary or not. So CMS has not made the final decisions on what kind of data submission would or would not be required. And, and if it is required, who you would be submitting the data to. But those are the kinds of questions that are being put out there. And the 340B claim identification is a really interesting one um, and certainly relevant to our discussion earlier about, you know, obviously we're looking at claim identification requirements, purposes of the inflation rebates. But now we could be looking at maybe a claim identification requirement purposes of the negotiation program. It's not necessarily required under the IRA, uh, but you know, manufacturers are making the argument that you know, there is this 340B non-duplication provision under the IRA and the negotiation program. In some ways, it's sort of a protection for the manufacturer to say that, you know, yes, the manufacturer is required to provide a pharmacy with access to the MFP, for a drug that's given to a Medicare beneficiary, um, but the manufacturer should not have to provide the 40B discount on top of the MFP. And so what non-duplication provision says 
is that if the 340B price is less, better than the MFP, then the manufacturer needs to provide the 340B price and they don't need to provide the MFP. But if MFP is better than the 340B price, then they still need to make sure they're providing the MFP, just not on top of the 340B discount. So that's an area that I think we should all be keeping an eye out for in terms of how CMS plans to implement this. Um, and, and you know, what steps will they require pharmacies to take to be able to access the MFP or access 340B in a way that fits within that non-duplication provision? I guess we could anticipate CMS working with HRSA to establish some some regulations, some rules around this, correct? There is a reference in the guidance CMS has issued under the negotiation program to the fact that CMS will be coordinating with HRSA, um, which is welcome news, I think. But certainly, you know, 340B is not a program is sort of within CMS's jurisdiction, and, and HRSA has more of that technical um, familiarity with 340B operations. And then I guess the follow-up question to that is, you know, since, you know, this Medicare price negotiation provisions all fall under the IRA and not necessarily the, the PHS statute, any compliance with this would fall outside of the scope of a HRSA 340B drug pricing program audit. Do you agree with that? That's right. I'm- the, the 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 new rules that exist under the IRA are primarily directed at drug manufacturers, you know, in terms of their compliance obligations. You could imagine that there may be certain compliance obligations that would be imposed on pharmacies under the program as well. You know, in order for a pharmacy to be able to submit a claim to a payer, they must do X. Or, you know, in order for a pharmacy to get access to the MFP things do why. Um, my suspicion is and we'll certainly see have to see how this plays out in the guidance, but my 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 suspicion is that those would not necessarily be, you know, they're not going to be requirements applicable to a pharmacy in the context of a covered entity's participation in 340. They would be requirements that would be applicable to a pharmacy in, in you know as part of their enrollment, you know, in the care, for example. All right. One one last question regarding, I guess, financial impact of the IRA is, you know, as the price becomes available, so the MFP becomes available and 340B covered entities, particularly as they see a shift in their purchasing, maybe from the 340B price drug to the MFP drug, what what do we anticipate in terms of financial trends that covered entities are going are to experience? Are we going to see lower reported 340B savings, but overall lower drug expenditures by the availability of MFP? Or what, what have you been hearing about in terms of the research that's been put out around the financial impact that this is going to have, particularly in the 340B hospital community? So this gets really, really complicated, but I think the short answer is that this will result in a shrinking of 340 savings for the drugs that are selected for negotiation. But I've got a whole lot of caveats to that. Um, You know, the reason why I think on the whole is going to look like a shrinking is because, you know, the ability to generate those 340 savings is you bought the drug at the lower price. But then you build the payer, you receive payer reimbursement. Your hope is that the payer reimbursement is significantly higher than your your 340B acquisition price. And there's that delta there that helps you preserve and generate those 340B savings. So it really is dependent on the payer reimbursement rate being higher and, and hopefully much higher than the purchase price. Well, the whole idea and the whole goal here under the negotiation program that Medicare is going to save a lot of money because they're going to pay for the drug 
based on the MFP, the negotiated price. And so, and the pharmacy is going to get access to the MFP. They're going to buy the drug at the MFP. Now, there may be a 340B price that is lower than the MFP. You know, as we know, under the 340 price calculation, there are inflation penalties. And so, they, and they get added on top of regular 340B discount. And so, if there is an inflation penalty on a drug, it could be that the 340B purchase price is still deeper or less than the MFP. Uh, but the reimbursement for Medicare is going to be based on the MFP. So spread will, instead of being the difference between the really low 340B price and a really high reimbursement rate, the spread is going to be the difference between the low 340B price and a much lower reimbursement rate. So that's where the shrinking of the spread will be. The caveat to that, though, is that is only on Medicare reimbursement, only on these 10 drugs, at least in the first year of the program when they are used for a Medicare patient and paid by Medicare. So if you're using one of those drugs for a commercial uh, patient covered by a commercial payer, it's not going to be uh, subject to that lower um, lower margin. And in fact, there may be ways over time that we could see an increase in 340B savings on the commercial claims as a result of what's going on you know, to the to the to the prices and the 340B price calculation. So I think you know as hospitals and other types of entities look at this and what it might mean for them financially, they need to be looking at their drug mix. Are you using these 10 drugs? Do they make up a big portion of your 340B savings? But also looking at your patient mix. Do you have a large medication population specifically with respect to those drugs? Uh, and then the last caveat I'll mention, uh, although I'm sure there are many more, but but maybe the last I'll mention for now is you know. I've been focusing, I think, a lot on Part D here, the pharmacy dispensed drugs, because in 2026, the first year of the program, these 10 drugs that have been selected are all Part D drugs, or at least based on drugs that have the highest Part D cost to Medicare. Um, and in time, though, there'll be another 15, and 15, eventually another 20 drugs each year that get added. So this will be cumulative. And I think by 2030, 2031, we'll see about 100 drugs selected for negotiation. And starting in 2028, the drugs that get selected for negotiation will come not only from the drugs, the Part D drugs that cost most to Medicare, but also Part B drugs. So this will sort of expand across not just pharmacy space, but also into the clinic-administered drug base. Uh, and that's going to change what type of providers are impacted as well. Uh, that's interesting. Rob, it, I mean, we've talked about this before, but you know, it really underscores the importance of establishing a good robust, sophisticated kind of formulary management process within your organization, right? Budgeting yeah, for these absolutely. drugs moving forward is going to be difficult. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, and, and there might be some uh, clinical substitutions, but, you know, I think there's a second part that, and I agree with Jeff, at the beginning, there's 10 drugs, but these are the higher cost drugs. There's some volume. One thing that this could impact, though, if you think about um, how wholesalers provide um, pricing and, and, and cost minuses to um, health systems or even just uh, pharmacies, as your overall drug spend goes down, your cost minus and your tiers may drop. So there is going to be potentially an impact and maybe not so much at first, but as you know, we get deeper into the years, you know, four, five, six, seven years in, and now the number of drugs have climbed. Now, some of these drugs might fall off as they get competition and so forth, but as, as the number of drugs that impacts, and if you're really buying more and more of these drugs on part D at uh, the, at, you know, at a lower price, like the MFP price, for some of these retail pharmacies, you might actually see a deterioration in your cost minus and your overall drug expenditure. So there is 
I think another component to watch for what's that, you know, uh, second order effect of spending less on drugs over time that I think uh, could, could be an impact um, as we get deeper into the IRA. No, I think you're right to point that out. And I think it's part of maybe a broader kind of category of um, indirect consequences that we need on the lookout for. You know, there's there are the sort of low-hanging fruit of the, the, the primary impact of this new program. But then there's going to be a lot of indirect impact in, across the market. We just don't even know what the impact's going to be until this program gets rolled out and how it affects things, because this is a really, really massive, significant change to the drug supply chain, and we just don't know yet how it'll play out. Well, operations around the IRA are already underway. Inflation penalties um, are being calculated this year. The first 10 drugs were posted earlier this month, um, but number of stakeholders are challenging some of the provisions within the Inflation Reduction Act. I think last I read, we've got eight separate lawsuits across six circuits, um, various stakeholders, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, the pharmaceutical lobbying industry, um, Chamber of Commerce. Jeff, what, what are your thoughts on some of the legal challenges to the IRA? Yeah, there's a lot going on here, and it's, I think, becoming increasingly clear that this is part of sort of a broader strategy, of perhaps a long-term strategy to try to uh, push back against the Medicare negotiation program. That is the portion of the IRA that is really the focus of the legal challenges. Um, and it is an attempt, um, in some cases, to actually stop implementation from moving forward. Um, it, most of the arguments that have been presented in these challenges focused on sort of big picture constitutional arguments that you know, Medicare is not allowed to do this because it's forced manufacturers to sell their drugs at lower prices sort of, you know, violates the taking clause of the um, Constitution, you know, taking property away um, without, you know, uh, due process or violating a manufacturer's First Amendment rights because it's forcing the manufacturer to, to say something. In other words, to sort of agree to this, um, enter into this agreement um, against their will. Those are the types of big picture arguments we're seeing. Uh, but one of the real key issues that is sort of very much on our radars as we speak and as we record today's podcast, is a request in one of the lawsuits for a court uh, to grant a, an injunction uh, to stop CMS from moving forward with implementation. Um, and that request has been made um, in one of the cases uh, asking the court to weigh in by October 1st. Um, as of recording right now, we, are, we do not have a decision from the judge, but oral arguments were just held last week on this point. And we did see some indications that the judge is hoping to issue a ruling on this uh, question uh, before the end of the month. Um, and the end of the month is actually a really key deadline here because, um, as I mentioned earlier, the first 10 drugs that are selected for negotiation in 2026, CMS released that list uh, at the beginning of this month. Manufacturers of those 10 drugs have until October 1st. Um, to um, enter into the agreement and proceed with negotiation. In other words, the manufacturer has to decide by October 1, do you want a basic day participating in Medicare and Medicaid or not? If, if you don't want to negotiate, then you can drop out of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but if you want to be in Medicare or Medicaid, then you have to enter into this agreement by October 1st. So it really is a key deadline in the implementation of this program. And, and the manufacturers that don't want to have to proceed with negotiation, they're asking for the court to grant that injunction um, prior to that, that date. Um, so we're going to be keeping a, an eye out for that. 
you know, I think the government's argument there is, you know, you can't get an injunction unless you can really show um, a high likelihood of, of financial harm that, that's really imminent. Um, and I think at least the response to government here is that, you know, we don't think there's going to be a financial harm period, but to the extent there is, it wouldn't be until 2026 when the um, negotiated price go into effect. Um, so we'll see if that persuades the court or not. Um, assuming that the court does not grant that injunction, um, implementation would proceed while these arguments play out in the court. And as mentioned, they're really spread out across lots of different circuit courts. And really what that's setting the stage for is the split of different circuits. So if we have different decisions, one circuit court says that it is legal, another says it's not, that's really, you know, a key strategy if the goal is to, to bring these challenges ultimately up to the Supreme Court. Um, and, and that may be where this is going. Well, stay tuned. <laughs> Rob, any other questions that we have for Jeff about IRA? No, I think that was a great discussion. Uh, you know, the the perspective, at least from Jeff's kind of um, uh, kind of work he does in the 340B space, and and how you know he and his law firm keep up with all these moving um, parts to the Inflation Reduction Act and and impacts on 340B. I think are really really good. So just really appreciate um, all the inside information. Jeff, before we break, uh, do you have time for one more round of questioning? Sure thing. We, when we were at Coalition, I think you were up on stage right as the uh, part, the CMS Part B proposed role for the remedy uh, was published by CMS. So I just wanted to take a minute and get your thoughts on kind of where you think that's going in terms of uh, how covered entities are going to be made whole for the Part B payment reductions they've been subject to going back to 2018. Yeah, on the whole, this is actually a really positive development. And, you know, there's a lot in the way of positive news for 340B providers these days. So I think it was very welcome when CMS issued um, that proposed rule for how they plan to remedy the lawful payment cuts. As I mentioned, this was stemming from the Supreme Court decision that held that you know the, the, the payment reductions to 340B hospitals, the OPPS, were unlawful. Um, and so now federal courts have ordered CMS to come up with a remedy. How are they gonna uh, uh, you know, unwind that? And so what they've proposed to do um, is to pay a really, really massive lump sum payment, $9 billion in total, each individual 340B hospital that was impacted by the payment reductions. We get a one-time lump sum payment, um, pay them back for the difference between what they paid for the drugs at, at the 340B prices and then what they got reimbursed. Um, sorry, the, the, the lump sum payment would reimburse them for the amount that they paid by Medicare at the lower price, lower reimbursement rate, and what they should have been paid um, the higher rate, um, you know, if the, if the unlawful payment reduction was not in place. So that's very welcome news. There are files online that hospitals can access to see what the amount would be of that one-time lump sum payment. People should definitely take a look at those files to make sure that they're accurate, that kind of reflects what you think you, you are entitled to. The one kind of piece of the proposal that I think hospitals uh, were not pleased with was that the government's really insisting this remedy be applied in a, what they refer to as a budgetary manner. So uh, when the payment reduction was first implemented, uh, reimbursed for drug costs went down, but they offset that increasing reimbursements for non-drug services. And so now for the remedy, they're saying they have to do it in the same manner. They're going to pay back uh, to make hospitals whole for what they, they were uh, lost out on in, in drug reimbursements, and they want to claw back from hospitals the increased payments that they received on, on drug services. 
Now they plan to do that over time. They're going to not implement it for another year. They'll delay implementation, and it'll be a 0.5% cut to reimbursement for non-drug services with the idea that over about 16 years, they would claw back the total amount that they say Medicare is due. Um, but that's certainly going to uh, penalize a lot of hospitals that, that you know, received you know, the increased payments to no fault of their own. It was only because of MS's unlawful payment policy. So we've seen all of the hospital groups push back on that. And we're now waiting for the final rule to come out. And we're hoping that that final rule is on track to come out before the end of the year. If they finalize this proposal as they put it forward, you know, three forty hospitals could be seeing some lump sum payments late this year or early next year, which I think would really welcome news. Do you, do you think the final rule, rule will address procedures for hospitals to take if they feel that the lump sum payment estimated by CMS is not accurate? It's likely that that would be something to be addressed through the MAX, the Medicare Administrative Contractors. What we did see in the proposed rule is that CMS plans to, you know, if they finalize as proposed, CMS would issue instructions to MAX for how they would go about implementing this. And so the, the lump sum payments would likely come from the MAC. And so to the extent that there, you know, a hospital thinks it's not the correct amount, my suspicion is that it would go through the MAX. But, um, but also, I think hospitals should be taking a look at those numbers now in terms of the estimated amount, because I said there was a file uh, shared online in conjunction with the proposed rule uh, that included the dollar amount for each individual hospital. So a hospital looks at that, and I don't think it's it's right. Um, you know, there may be steps to take now to address that, or at least to flag it for CMS's attention. And then one last question, Rob, unless you have anything else, Medicare Advantage plans or claims, uh, repayment for uh, Medicare Advantage, Co covered entities going to need to work directly with those Medicare Advantage payers to seek repayment? Yeah, really interesting kind of hot topic right now because CMS has not directly addressed what this remedy would or would not mean for Medicare Advantage plans. Um, we know that if you're at at work, if you're not contracted, Medicare Advantage plans are supposed to pay no less than the traditional Medicare amount. So I think you're seeing hospitals argue that, you know, the MA plan should be paying no less than, than the amount that, you know, the, that, that is being issued as a remedy and that the remedy should extend to the MA plan as well. And when you're in network with an MA plan, it's, you know, negotiated rates pursuant to your contract. Um, so, you, you know, hospitals need to look at those, at those contracts. But certainly I've worked with clients to think through, you know, whether there's a case to be made under the terms of contract that um, in light of these unlawful payment um, policies by Medicare, you know, federal courts have weighed in and found these policies unlawful. And depending on the terms of the contract, you know, you know that that finding by the federal courts extend to the, the contractual payments as well. So I think that's definitely something hospitals should work with counsel to look at. Great. Rob, any other questions for Jeff before we wrap up for the day? No, um, just I don't, I don't know, uh, Jeff, if you are a In-N-Out fan, um, In-N-Out Burger <laughs> fan, but uh, we've been having discussions around. I know that's more of a West Coast thing, um, but uh, is that is that a restaurant you've uh, frequented? Uh, it is, and whenever I'm out on the West Coast, I do try to make it out to, to In-N-Out. Why do you ask? Well, we're curious. Uh, I've been learning over time that there's these secret menu things, and just wondering if you get anything out of the the norm. Uh, in and out. I, we learned re I learned recently that you can add peppers to your burger, and I tried it. My son and I went and got a, 
double-double uh, um, with these peppers, and it's pretty dang good. Just wondering if you had any any specific in-and-out um, options that you put on yours. Yeah, what's, what's your, uh, your typical not order? Familiar with the, yeah, the secret menu is not something I'm familiar with, but, you know, uh, one of the things I like about the 340B Coalition Conference every year is that I get to make it up to San Diego every winter, and the weather's not so great in D.C., so I'll have to add that to my to-do list when I'm back out <laughs> in San Diego. It's a good one. It's a good one. All right, Jeff. I really appreciate you joining us today. I always appreciate your easy description of the ongoing CMS 340B saga. Cleared up a lot of questions that we've had. Um, Hope maybe you'd be interested in coming on again if we get some, you know, significant changes in how all of this is going to be facilitated in the future. Open invitation accepted. Come back on. Absolutely. Know where to find me. All right. Thanks again for joining us, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you the next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.